your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is John Cochran. John is the AQR Capital Management Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. John, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. You should also mention I'm also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, which is where I am right now. Great. So uh, you've written a lot about the inequality debate recently. I guess, you know, I'm an average American. It's uh, low on the list of my priorities. Why should I care about inequality and the inequality debate? Well, I'm having trouble figuring that out uh, as well. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's paraded around as the world's biggest problem. And, um, you know, we see all sorts of things happening that make us worry. Um, uh, you know, the rich getting richer, supposedly. Uh, we might talk about the numbers. But the real question is, why do you care if somebody else goes out and gets tremendously rich? Why do we care about equality rather than just making all people better off? Uh, are we in some sense better off if we're all equally poor rather than somewhat unequally rich? And I think the inequality guys have had a big struggle trying to explain why inequality itself is such a big problem. Yeah, and part of what's frustrating about the debate is it's not even clear what the argument is. Is it that inequality is inherently bad? Is it a cause of other problems? Is it a symptom of other problems? And as we go along, maybe we'll try to tease out what their argument is, but it's certainly revealing on the face of it that it's not a clearly laid out claim. Yeah, now no, let's, uh, let's start with, we're going to be economists today. Uh, I think underlying it, there's some sort of sense of fairness or morality or so forth that, that it's, it's not right for some people to be so rich and so poor, which may or may not be true. And then they jump into, so the federal government has to take money from some and give it to someone else and enforce fairness and morality and so forth. So let's just leave that one aside. We're economists. Uh, let's talk about, is it an economic problem uh, in, in one sense? I think you hit, hit the nail on the head there. Uh, when you talk to inequality people, the first thing, they talk about some serious problems in the economy, but then it looks like inequality is a symptom of, of problems rather than a problem uh, in and of itself. Now, one more piece of the context I want to lay down. In a lot of your writing, you do something that I think is very valuable, which is always looking at how they talk about the problems in the context of what their proposed remedies and solutions are. So can you lay out just a little bit, what are the typical kinds of solutions that they propose to the various problems that come under the umbrella of inequality? Well, I, I think the problem is that the solutions come first. Uh, as, as you've noticed, that there's a drumbeat now for really extraordinarily high taxes on, uh, on high incomes and high wealth in the United States. And uh, th that seems to be the number one solution, and then we go looking for problems to justify that solution. The other part, which is a little less obvious, but is a deep part of it, is uh, much more government control over people's incomes. It's, it's much easier to stop them from getting rich in the first place than it is uh, to take their money after they've gotten rich. So I think a, a big part of the agenda is also uh, statistical discrimination suits and, and uh, laws against CEO pay 
and uh, more unions and and basically the government getting deeply involved in who earns uh, how much. So those are the answers. And then I think they go searching around uh, for why we have to have those answers. So let's start with kind of a big picture view of your view of what's been happening with the rich and the rest of us over the last 30, 40 years. Well, uh, we could get into a debate on the numbers. So there is this claim, Thomas Piketty's famous book and, and so forth, that within the United States and within large industrial societies, that uh, rich people have gotten uh, richer. Um, there, I don't want to give in on the facts too quickly. I think those facts are open to a lot of debate, a lot's going on. I mean, one of the examples is that they tend to measure income and wealth as reported to tax authorities uh, before taxes, before transfers, and so forth. Well, um, you know, pe people are reporting more income now than they used to. The difference between corporate and personal income taxes uh, makes that difference. Uh, you know, Mao Zedong was, was uh, number one guy in China, and he didn't report a lot of income to his tax authorities. So, you know, that, that kind of stuff just isn't uh, mentioned. But uh, I think the what I've tried to do is not get involved in that numbers thing, which I, which I want to say is important. But then we, we tend to jump from here's the numbers to, oh, this is a problem. We've got to do something about it. So let's just take the numbers, e even as, as the left wants to report them, and think about, well, okay, is that something we ought to do anything about? And, and so let's, let's, let's lead the, leave the conversation in that direction. Okay, let, suppose it's true that, um, uh, that the upper 1% in the U.S. is, is uh, doing better than it used to be. And, and I'm, I'm deliberately not saying the rich got richer because it's a different set of people who are rich now, but they are, suppose it's true that they are richer than they were before. Well, then, so what? I think is the uh, thing that we want to talk about. Well, so what? <laughs> the, the other part of it, uh, so I, mean, I do want a, a little more on the numbers, there's all sorts of other measures of inequality that aren't different. They keep focusing on this 1% thing. I, I think it's kind of like um, they're unhappy that's, that rich people are, it's kind of an envy of the super rich going on because, uh, like, globally, we're a lot less unequal than we used to be. The rise of China and India is just a remarkable thing that's happened in our lifetime and reduced global inequality a lot. Well, they're not, they're not really talking about that. And sort of lots of social and political dimensions. America is, we should pat ourselves on the back a little. We had a lot of problems, but, you know, compare us now to the South in 1950. There's, there's a lot more equality than there used to be. A lot more prosperity, too. I mean, I, <laughs> I think that's so important what you mentioned. I mean, the reduction of global poverty from 40% to 14% in, what, 30 years. That's one of the most amazing things. And the fact that they don't talk about that and explore the causes more is really revealing because, I mean, imagine all the hospitals in California, but only California saw cancer survivability, you know, plummet from 40 to 14%. If we found out that medical researchers weren't looking into that and were indeed complaining that it was making cancer survivability unequal, like that would be, uh, like people would be outraged by that. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's this, all this focus on the lifestyles of the rich and famous uh, when, when the, the news and the remaining challenge. I mean, um, the, the, the remaining challenge is the great number of people who live on $1 to $2 a day and, and don't have water and, and don't have even bathrooms. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's both a great success and a big challenge. Uh, and why are we so upset about the, uh, the lifestyle, whether hedge fund managers fly commercial or not? 
Well, so they obviously have uh, some arguments along those lines, and one of them is that in one way or another, inequality is bad for economic growth, whether it's because it leads uh, the rich to save too much rather than spend, which is allegedly what the middle class and lower classes would do, um, or they'll just have statistical comparisons between countries that allegedly show uh, that it undermines economic growth. What do you make of that? Yeah, um, I, I make a whole lot of it's a whole lot of just complete nonsense arguments being bandied around, um, like this argument that that rich people induce poor people to spend too much, uh, and so we got to get rid of the rich people so that poor people won't won't uh, will will save more, and that's just silly. Uh, similarly, the, the argument that uh, as a nation we are now now supposedly we're spending too little, so we have to take it from rich people so that you give it give it to people who will spend it. Uh, there's a lot of silliness here, which is I kind of wonder why are we um, just making up arguments uh, on the silly side. Now there is there is a one argument that that is worth pursuing. There are um, you can get a lot of inequality uh, related to growth. So. Uh, there's a good kind of inequality, which is uh, Steve Jobs, you know, starts a great company, invents great stuff, makes a pile of money off of it, and we're all better off for his presence. Um, so there's an inequality that, that helps economic growth. And there's, uh, you know, uh, Chinese, uh, Russian oligarchs who are uh, feeding at the trough of, of the state, you know, sort of crony capitalist um, um, misuse of the government. That's, that's a, there's a case where inequality is a symptom of things gone terribly wrong with the economy. Uh, and that's, that's a, a worthwhile uh, thing to investigate. I think the evidence favors that in the U.S., you know, there are billionaires are mostly self-made people who started new companies. Um, and, and they're not, they're in, in new fields, they're not in resource extraction. So I think that kind of favors um, the, the good inequality view of the U.S. But that, that at least is the one sensible thing in this whole discussion. Now, I read some uh, economists claim that monetary policy uh, not just theoretically can but has been responsible for significant inequality in America because it in, in their way of telling it it's you know feeds into propping up stock prices which predominantly the wealthy hold do you have a view on that um, well well first of all why in the world if it were true why in the world would the right thing to do be to leave monetary policy alone and then tax the crap out of the rich? Uh, we always get back to if this is the if this is the problem, why is taxing the rich the answer? Yeah. Um, but I also don't think that that's a particularly important uh, mechanism. Uh, I think we've vastly overstated the power of monetary policy uh, to affect uh, lots of things, including stock prices. And it's just very hard uh, to find a sensible link between the level of short-term interest rates, which the Fed can control and the level of stock prices. By the way, even that kind of inequality is, let's call it paper inequality. It's, it doesn't last very long. If stock prices, I mean, at best, the Fed can raise stock prices for a little bit, but they'll come back down again sooner or later. Um, so in, in some sense, who cares what their stocks are worth if they just sit there? So another argument is more historic, and that's, look, when we had low inequality and lots of government intervention pro-union legislation, high marginal tax rates in the post-war period, you know, America did better than it had ever done. And today, uh, when we have allegedly an air of laissez-faire, um, Americans have done very poorly and inequality has skyrocketed. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, 
So it's easy to run regressions and correlate things. You know, rich, rich guys drive BMWs, but driving a BMW isn't going to make you rich. All sorts of reasons why the 1950s was an era of great growth. The U.S. was coming out of uh, two horrible decades, uh, a Great Depression, and then um, spending all of our resources on, on things that got sunk in the ocean. And uh, the rest of the world was, uh, was flat on its back. Uh, so there's a good case that the 50s were great growth despite interventions. And also... Um, the 50s, we had a, a very high uh, statutory taxes. You read the laws and it says 90% tax rate, but you look at how much money rich people actually paid in taxes, and they were paying about 20%, just like they're paying now. Um, high tax rates give a big demand for lawyers, loopholes, lobbyists, tax shelters, and the rest of it, uh, which is probably exactly what we'll get if we attempt to uh, put the legal tax rate up, up to 90% again. Over the broad scope of history, it's just awfully hard to make a claim that the secret of prosperity is for the government to, to tax away 70, 80, 90 percent of, of the rewards to innovation, hard work, building companies, and growth, or the government to get deeply involved in who gets to earn how much, set wages, set prices. Uh, you, you know, you, you can come up with some regressions if you want, but by what mechanism is the sign of, of everything we know on how to create prosperity suddenly the wrong way. Yeah, yesterday, I think it was, I read an article in the New York Times by, um, I'm going to blank in his name, I think his last name is Ratner, and he was pointing out that uh, he was arguing that inequality is a problem. We're less equal than these other countries, and when he plotted on a list the countries that had more equality, America was topped by those economic juggernauts, Spain and Ireland and Greece, yeah, and, and then there's there's the whole measurement uh, issue. You know, when you, when you look at the real disaster countries, just uh, tax records from, from Mr. Piketty to go through just are not there. You know, Soviet Union, uh, China, uh, those are those are you know the, the North Korea. Here's some terrible countries. Uh, yeah, they have they have ninety percent tax rates. <laughs> Uh, and, and China and India that, that we mentioned, you know, how did China and India start growing? Did they start growing by raising their tax rates, by having the government take over more parts of business? Uh, or did they start growing by lowering their tax rates, letting people keep more of their fruits of their labor and, and especially their businesses uh, by freeing up what you're allowed to do? I mean, the, the story there is pretty clear. So why would we think it worked differently for us? So another kind of objection is that we see inequality peak in America right before economic crises, like the Great Depression, the financial crisis. And obviously those are both really complex in terms of figuring out you know, what the actual causes were. But is there any reason we should be alarmed that inequality leads to economic crises? Uh, well, again, by what plausible mechanism? It was a very real statistical very, it's very, it's an easy one to answer statistically. Just before you have crises, you tend to have very high stock prices. So mark to market, uh, people who own stocks look like they're doing well, and then the stocks plummet. Inequality got got much, much better in the Great Recession in the U.S. Better, got, there was a lot less inequality because rich people owned a lot of stocks. Stock market crashed. Rich people had a whole lot less. Um, so we, we, we could repeat that quickly. <laughs> And I think that's just a function of asset prices going up and going down. Now, one of the things you highlight 
in uh, one of your pieces that I think was really good was the status of the money and politics argument for them. So the inequality alarmists, as I like to call them, they tell us that both a cause of inequality and one of the dangers of it is that the rich have immense influence over politics. And I think you really honed in on that this is really central to their concern. What is their... What is their worry, and how does that fit in with their solution? See, I, I think I think you're right. And as I, I read through this, to see, so again, our, our question is not is why is inequality in and of itself a problem, not a symptom of other problems? Because if it's a symptom of other problems, let's fix those other problems. Let's not just fix the inequality. So I, I read through their their stuff, and and uh, so we, we start with a whole bunch of sort of stories about inequality and growth and inequality and financial crisis that don't make any sense. And I go, why is this stuff? And then we get down to uh, this claim that inequality is bad because extremely rich people might control the political system. Now that that makes sense. That as finally as a logical argument, why would you be obsessed by the upper one percent? And not worry about you know the, the the poor people getting left behind or the the, the mid, middle class or the global poverty and so forth. Well, it takes upper one percent incomes to to um, to have a political impact, and and so here's the so they are worried about uh, and I think that's um this is something to think about. America from from sort of a libertarian point of view, America is becoming a much more Hidebound, crony capitalist, call it what you want, uh, state where where government and government regulation and businesses are are in bed with each other. But th- then, so so to that extent, I'm I'm, I'm sympathetic. But the, the idea then is that if if the government raises the tax rate to ninety percent, then rich people won't have will just take away the money, and then they can't have any impact on politics. And that seems to me to, to go exactly the, the wrong way. If, if too much government interference is the problem, more government is not the solution. And if you raise tax rates to 90%, that's just going to send everybody uh, back to their congressman or, or lobbyist or, or whatever to try to get a special break and in return offer a campaign contribution. And we'll just make the problem much, much worse. Yeah, but it's the, I mean, they had this whole view of quote, democracy. So they, they're not particularly concerned about individual rights, certainly not property rights, but their view is that, well, you know, we'll basically have democracy where anything goes, but so long as no particular person has too much influence, somehow the public good, which equates with whatever they think is good, uh, that will somehow emerge. And so we just need the non-distortion of the Koch brothers, you know, being able to buy commercial ads. Yeah, but somehow the public employees unions will be able to buy commercial ads. <laughs> so that, that's, it is favoring one, one versus another. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing is their, their concept of the public good is not whatever the public decides, but it's, they've already figured it out. And it's just how do we get the, that implemented, the, the ideology and the policies that we already have been able to assess are in the public interest. Yeah, and, and I think here there's a clear I, – I like to come to agreement on things, or at least agreement on what, the, what is the argument about. So there's a cause and effect thing here. Do, do you think that if the government uh, tr- uh, sets the official tax rate to 90 percent and takes away rich people's money, that that's going to lead our government to be able to be benevolent and help the little guy and remove money from politics, remove uh, cronyism – or do you think that's going to make the whole matter much, much worse? 
and, and my view of government, perhaps yours, is that's going to make the matter a whole much worse. That limited government that doesn't have the power to redistribute incomes, to, to tell people how much they earn, that's what removes uh, politi- uh, poli- uh, money from politics. And I think it's, it's particularly dangerous in this case. What they're really saying is we want to take away money so, so that, that we can silence people we don't like. Um, and that, uh, um, that, that's effective. Um, many, many countries have taken away money and silenced uh, political opposition. Uh, but that's certainly not the way I'd like our country to go. Now, there's something odd about this debate that we've kind of touched on. Um, it really tends to take place on the issue of the statistical data and how it's used. But it's not – I've never met anybody – with the possible exception of Scott Winship, who really seems that they've been convinced or changed their mind on the basis of data. So I have a two-part question. One, what do you think it is that shapes how people think or what they think about inequality? And then two, what sorts of arguments do you think could change the way people think about inequality? Well, it has been an interesting argument. You know, uh, inequality, like climate arguments, people are arguing about the facts and then kind of giving in that if the facts, uh, you know, once we establish the fact that the conclusions are inevitable. So, you know, we argue a lot about have the upper 1% gotten richer or not so rich and kind of given in, well, if they have, then we, then we have to tax them or something of the sort. And that seems kind of silly. I think, we, I think the bigger argument is, should be about what the consequences of numbers are. It's the same way with climate. There's sort of, you know, yes, it's happening versus no, it's happening. And as if, you know, if we could just say, oh, the IPCC's projections are right, then we have to have, uh, you know, all this set of huge policies, whereas that's, it's, the, the if and then it just doesn't make much sense whatsoever. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, then let's... Uh, you asked a question, which I didn't answer. I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> so, oh, well, the, so the question was, what, what do you think are the things that really are driving people's conclusions here? And then, therefore, what does that imply about what kind of arguments we should be focused on making to change people's minds? Yeah, um, the if and then there really is. Uh, notice that the answers came first and the questions come later. The, the demand for government to enlarge, to control people's income, to confiscate uh, from the rich very high taxes, um, it's not really redistribution. It's just, it's just grab, grab the top end and have more government programs uh, that demand has been around for at least 100 years, maybe two or 300 years. Uh, and it just, you know, well, inequality is the reason of the day. Uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, Keynesians, for example, are now on to inequality as, as they, they wanted to stimulate demand. Well, where were you guys with that for the last 70 years when you were talking about other ways of stimulating demand? So the answers seem to be the same and, and, and the, the questions change. And that's why I think this data argument isn't really going anywhere. Uh, this is just the the latest in a um, in a hundred year debate, two hundred year debate about the size and proper role of the government. So then, yeah, I want to end on the question of so set aside the inequality issue. We, you and I, really are you know want to see people be able to prosper, and there do seem to be real barriers to it. What do you think a person concerned with prosperity? What what are the policies that really would promote that? rather than the agenda of tax and give away money. Yeah, I want prosperity and I want growth. Uh, you know, economic growth is everything. Uh, 
and, and uh, you know, a couple percent more growth rate for a generation makes a huge difference. You know, the reason you and I are so much, so much better off than our grandparents and great grandparents is not redistributive taxation. It's that our economy grew. Uh, same, same. You know, how, how did China and India make make billions of people better off? Not by redistributing the guy with you know. Uh, the guy with two bushels of rice gave one to the guy with one bushel of rice, but by allowing growth to happen. So I, I think the right agenda is growth and care for the real bottom. I don't, I don't care if hedge fund managers flying Gulfstreams or 737s. Uh, I do care very much about the bottom end of American society, which is falling behind, largely because of the uh, because of the influence of the government uh, and 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 horrible schools and and so on and so forth. Um, but that's that's just a different agenda. I mean, uh, that has nothing to do with with uh, confiscating the wealth of uh, truly rich because there's no money in it. If you look at the numbers, the idea that we're going to tax the rich to provide lots of revenue just just doesn't work out. There just isn't that much revenue there. You're just going to tax them to get rid of them, which is uh, I think a lot of the point. If you if you could pick one or two policy changes that could be made in like the next two or three years that you think would be a good start moving in the direction of increasing economic growth, what would they be? Oh, uh, clean up the tax code, uh, large deregulation, um, uh, public schools, uh, you know, vouchers for public schools, um, uh, open up immigration, sort of the standard libertarian agenda, I think, would lead to a flourishing of growth and and, uh, and help people who who are really in trouble right now. My guest today has been John Cochran. John, thanks again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. So the main thing I want to highlight is just the power of remembering that whatever the debate over the facts of what's been happening economically lately, one really clarifying perspective is to ask, does that imply the prescriptions advocated by the inequality alarmists does stagnating middle-class incomes if that's true the poor getting poorer if that's true the rich getting rich through government favors and buying government influence if that's true is the solution to any of these things to just take a lot of money from people for the government to spend a lot more money on people that they haven't earned to restrict the speech of people with wealth or is it to liberate the economy, um, protect freedom, and reduce the power of the government to give out special favors to people? And if you keep that perspective, then, as I think John really illustrates well, a lot of these complicated questions are ultimately beside the point. They might be interesting and valuable in their own right, but none of them should lead us to conclude that the solution to inequality is to take away more wealth and freedom from people. And with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 